peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with Professor Dario Karpan, who is a professor of behavioral sciences at the LSE, and uh, it was really, really insightful and fun to speak with him. So on this podcast, I have often discussed the problems that, are, that arise if one dissects everything in one's everyday thinking. Uh, for example, one can re- run into problems with infinite regress of meta-languages in logical languages and lack of time and computational power if one tries to quantify everything. So another problem uh, is the difficulty in defining words and variables due to the fact that different people associate different emotions with the same phenomena uh, or phenomenon, which in turn are associated with different words among uh, different people. So to which extent do you think that we should try to make our everyday decisions spontaneously and when should we you know, take it a bit slower? Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, so the, the first thing I actually wanted to mention obviously about models and measurements is obviously that only the universe itself is its own most accurate model. So we can probably never make a model that is more accurate than the universe. So whatever model we make, we are going to reduce something. Uh, and in an ideal world, we would not necessarily be making models. We will probably be experiencing things and we will be our own model, but we do need to make models uh, because we do need some estimations or predictions in the world where we live. Uh, I mean, need. when I say need, I don't even necessarily think we need models, practically speaking. I think simply that we are very bad in uh, very bad in dealing with uncertainty. So we need models because we cannot deal with uncertainty and we want to answer various questions to ourselves. If if I was uh, not me, just general humanity or people, if we were so good in dealing with uncertainty that we could acknowledge that the world is uncertain to a large degree and we didn't need explanations, we maybe wouldn't need models. But because we are not, we do need models. Now, that being said, when do I think that we should be thinking about things and when do I think that we should act spontaneously? Well, to answer this question, like first, I need to emphasize that our brain is very limited. So just what you can hold in your working memory, it's somewhere between five to seven pieces of information, five to seven digits. For some people, it could be five to 10, for some people, five to 15, but in general, it is very limited. So I think we should really try to think slowly only about very simple problems where you can work with five to 10 pieces of information. I mean, just really simple things. I don't know if you go out and you try to buy a book, that could be some simple decision because you need to take a couple of uh, variables into consideration. Maybe even if you're buying a car, you can take several simple pieces of information into account. But when we are talking about some really like complicated, complex questions and many, many existential questions are very complex. Many questions with which we deal on a day to day basis are very complex and they are like thousands. I mean, they, they basically have an infinite number of variables. I think in those cases, it's much better to think spontaneously. And I think our kind of subconscious unconscious comes with a much better answer in that regard. And even from a scientific point of view, I mean, people typically talk about uh, automaticity and spontaneity as being biased, but I actually strongly believe that intuition is a much valuable, is is the most valuable thing when it comes to science and scientific progress. And I mean, many scientific discoveries were first intuition. So people had very strong intuition and then they would gradually work it out over the years. So I think uh, at least from my perspective, I really, 
I would say that I'm a proponent of intuition and of advancing and building your intuition and even relying to it because you cannot build your intuition unless you constantly rely on it and then you will see some things you will do wrong some things you will do right but in general yeah to me intuition is a very is a very strong uh, i mean it's it's a really special evolutionary creation that that uh it does exist it does exist for some reason whatever you want to define as reason and it did help tremendously over the course of humanity i mean thousands of years ago when we didn't necessarily have science a lot of things that we created and why we survived as a species was because of intuition and then even if you think about think about very complex problems if, if you're solving like physics problems or you're working on psychological experiments you do need to obviously start by thinking consciously uh, and then obviously we work on these problems we force ourselves to think about it but then we never really come up with a solution through conscious reasoning, simply because consciously we cannot hold that many variables uh, into our attention, within our attention. So what happens is that when we work on something consciously, when we think about something and enforce it, then bra brain very likes it, takes it as being something that is important to us. And then brain unconsciously works on these solutions over periods of time. And then we see the solution. I mean, many scientific discoveries were also kind of these eureka moments where people would spontaneously come up with a solution, something that they would work on consciously, but then the solution would come when the unconscious brain, kind of the unconscious part, integrated all this information. Uh, so that's how I think, that's that's my other part of the answer, because I think we, we should kind of, uh, when we are working on the problems, enforce conscious reasoning, but simply to indicate to the brain that this is something very important to us. And then the brain will take it over and integrate the information over some period of time, which may take hours, days, years, when it, things finally become clear to us. Mm -hmm. So two follow-up questions. So firstly, I just wanted to quickly mm -hmm. clarify this. How do you define a digit of information? Because you mentioned that we can you know, work with five at a time. So how do you define a digit? Well, they, I mean, you have various research. Like you can say you can remember seven numbers five to seven numbers, five to 10, whatever, but then obviously you can combine numbers together. So you, you can just look at it this way, five, seven, six, three, two, one, whatever, but then you can combine that into one piece of information into two, three, and four. Now I'm not clear on what exactly the limitation is because you cannot, you cannot do that with thousands of numbers, but I, I think the main, rather than trying to quantify it, it's five, seven, or 50. I think the main point to remember is that simply our attention, or you can call it, it's basically working memory capacity. So what can we work with? What type of information and the amount? It is fairly limited. Uh, I mean, there are these working memory tasks where you would, I don't know, you would see a sentence and you would need to indicate whether the sentence is correct. And then uh, before that, you would see like a sequence of numbers and then you would need to remember the numbers. And once you need to like remember the numbers and indicate whether the sentence is correct and then recall the numbers. I mean, this is also very limited. People can do it five, six, seven. So, I mean, there are some people who can take this to great extremes, but working with this information just consciously uh, while you're working on problems, I mean, it's very, it's very limited. It's bigger for some people than for others. But if you just look at how the amount of information that is present in our environment and in the universe, it's much, much bigger than what, what we can ever uh, uh, consciously hold and work with. Mm. Okay, so, um, moving on. When do you think that um, Hegelian dialectical logic, and then I mean 
you know, holism and, you know, uh, thesis, antithesis, and uh, uh, syntax and all of that, uh, synthesis. Uh, when do you think that is better than, better than using, you know, statistical inference uh, in psychology? Okay, well, so, uh, okay, we, let, let's, let's first talk about statistical inference and then I'll answer the question in relation to that. And to me, what, what, what you, in, in the question you gave me, what you kind of describe as statistical inference is basically just putting some variables in the model and then predicting something or influencing, some, or if it's a money, that's, that's a different thing. Let's talk about predicting something. To me, with statistical inference, like we can only, to me, it's really only it has a practical value. So we can predict someone's behavior or if we are manipulating some experiment, then we can calculate whether something influences something. But I think with statistical inf inference, we really cannot get into deeper questions of psychology and of understanding the deep questions about human mind and behavior that people want to know. So I think for policy purposes, that is very good, the methodology we have today. But for answering any deeper questions about human mind and behavior, I think this is uh, definitely inadequate. And I think uh, we actually need to work on methodology much more to take it to the level where it's adequate. What do I mean by in inadequate? Well, I mean, just look at the general population. When people read about psychology, do they read scientific studies or do they read some like popular psychologist philosophers like Deepak Chopra? Well, they probably do the latter because uh, these popular psychologists, or even like if you look at better literature, like like uh, writers like Dostoevsky, they write about human psychology in a much more profound way than you can gain from any statistical inferences we have today. And when people want to understand themselves, they much they are much more likely to, to gravitate towards such thinkers because there is something deeper in there and our statistics is still not on that level and that's a big limitation of science because we can publish some cute findings this predicts this this influences this uh, but this is still not enough to give people some deeper meaning and interpretation and i think that's where we need to work as scientists and this brings me to the area of complex dynamical systems now, the main problem of statistics we typically use is that it has some kind of additive effects that don't really exist in the real world. So I don't know if you want to predict, let's say you want to predict, uh, do you have some good example about prediction you want me to talk about? Or I can say something. Say something you. Yeah, okay, so let's you want to, you want to predict what I will be doing, let's say whether I'll eat a, a donut tomorrow or not. And now you can put many variables there. You can put uh, my height, weight, what I ate yesterday, and so on and so on. And all these effects are kind of some additive effects. But this is very artificial. What happens in the real world is that all the variables are intertwined. So one variable influences another, another variable influences the other. They all influence each other. And that is what's what can actually be modeled by differential equations, which we do not use that much in psychology because they're relatively complicated and you need many measurements. But what do I mean by differential equations? What is, what is it as a qualitatively speaking? So for example, your hunger influences what you will eat. What you will eat will in turn influence your hunger. Uh, your air pressure around you or temperature will influence your hunger. 
but then when when you eat something you're probably going to burn more calories so that will influence uh, the temperature around you and there are hundreds of variables which are intertwined like this so you cannot just like model them very simply as we do in regression analysis it is all very intertwined and interconnected and that is the real world and if we had the tools to measure things in this way and investigate them in this way i think we would come up with much more profound insights about human mind and behavior because we would understand how things are intertwined and we would be able to gain kind of at least understand some deeper connections and there are people who started doing this to some degree but it's very complicated because you need very precise measurements and you need many 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 measurements uh, because differential equations are really how things evolve over time how your hunger changes over time and how that impacts your eating over time how your eating in turn impacts your hunger uh, how your eating impacts your temperature around you and over many many data points many days or minutes so just very complicated to do like we do not necessarily have those measurement measurement tools yet but when we do become better in quantification and we are now evolving more and more technology maybe some technologies will be able to do this at some point in time uh, and when we also develop this methodology a bit more i think we will be able to gain some deeper insights into human mind and behavior and in my view this should actually be one of the goals of psychology more to develop and work on development of these methodologies that can help us to get deeper into human mind and get some really deep deeper uh, insights right so speaking of using regression analysis and differential equations to uh, quantify behavioral data um, do you think that it is impossible to purely rationally define well-being either bioinformatically or semantically, you know, by, by linking that biomarker data or exposome data with uh, uh, with uh, behavioral data. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I do have a, obviously, <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about these questions a lot and, and I don't think it's uh, possible to like have a perfect mapping of well-being, at least not at this day and age, but I do think that it is possible kind of to define some markers of well-being even if they're not per perfect they can be practical so first what i think of well-being i don't okay so let, let me say this so uh first i don't think well-being is just like some how people feel i don't think it's about maximizing one particular thing i think well-being is really about variety so if i could speak about some quantification of well-being it would be about quantifying your variety so what type of activities you need to take across a day uh, and then putting some measure to that because you cannot just feel good you cannot just feel neutral you cannot just feel bad all the day so to really so well-being is not necessarily just having one particular type of feeling because that's not possible it's 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 really about having a range of different feelings but in a way that this is not pathological it's not about being too happy it's not about being too sad because this is both but this this both states could be pathological like if you are too sad you get depressed you it can lead to suicide if you are too happy then you need to counterbalance and you can in in turn become too sad and this can lead to some kind of manic states so it's really about some kind of fluctuation and balance and now we here need to go even a bit deeper. So what is well-being in itself? To me, well-being is really, again, it's not 
about how you feel that it's only a manifestation but if you want to define well-being you need to go deeper so for me well-being is really a harmony between so a harmony across all levels of matter or substance or spirit or soul whatever you want to call it that substitute a human being so if you talk about it materially so well-being would really be a harmony between your organs, organs between atoms that constitute the organs, between subatomic particles, lower scale particles. So it would be really a harmony of all these components constituting you as a mechanism. That's that is what well-being is to me. And then obviously the consequence of that would be that you experience certain mental emotional states as a consequence of this harmony, which would be kind of perfect well-being. And now the question is, how could we even quantify this harmony somehow? What, what would it mean on a scientific sense? And there is a very interesting thing like uh, uh, complex dynamical systems. So, so researchers who, who uh, investigate those systems in nature, they did find that there is like one pattern of fluctuation, which basically is common across a range of different phenomena. And it is called pink noise. And you will find pink noise, for example, if 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 you uh, if you want to quantify how the level of I don't know some river fluctuates across a year, uh, you will you will find a pattern which you call pink noise there. If you quantify how heartbeat fluctuates, you will also find that pattern there, and in many other areas of nature. And even if you talk about, for example, self-esteem of healthy individuals, how it fluctuates on a day-to-day -day basis across several years, it also follows that pattern of pink noise. And now, how do we actually describe what is pink noise? I mean, it's difficult. It's a mathematical formulation, so it's difficult to describe it in like a more like non-mathematical language. But the idea would be more that like you you okay. Let's put it this way. Uh, let's talk about well-being. So when so sad and happy and neutral states need to kind of change, but without any of them becoming too dominant. So you cannot have negative states repeating too much a day across a day. That is not pink noise. That is dominance of one state. Uh, pink noise is really kind of interchange, continuous fluctuation of these states because that is what is healthy. If some of the states are too predominant, that is basically not good, and it can lead, it can lead to various negative consequences and to me the holy grail of well-being would not even be applying pink noise to the actual emotional states uh, or any pattern how whatever way we can quantify that kind of what would be the perfect pattern of fluctuation i would really want to implement it to daily activities so how do you need to organize your day how do you need to change the activities across the day so you achieve that perfect balance between all levels of your body and mind and and i don't think we will answer that question very soon but uh that i think is what research should strive towards and i know this is like at the moment it is a very ambitious thing and it's i mean i don't think this is something policymakers should still think about because uh, they need to be practical this is still not practical so anything we can do to somehow implement well-being in policy making and use it instead of economically speaking, just instead of money would be useful, like some of my colleagues are colleagues are doing from LSE. But I think uh, ultimately what researchers do need to investigate is how do you how do you identify this deep pattern of well-being which constitutes like complete harmony of body and mind. 
and how do you quantify it? Because I think many philosophers have been talking about this, about harmony, harmony, body and mind, but we never really still thousands of years after philosophers, we still never found a way to actually quantify this and, and understand how it works. Right. So you, how, how would you describe harmony? You spoke about spirits and stuff. Do you, do, do you, this, do you, were you alluding to, you know, dualism and, you know, yeah. So do you include that perspective in, in harmony? Do, I mean, dualism is an interesting idea and I, I mean, it's, 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 uh, there have been various philosophical positions that, that try to resolve dualism. Some of them claim that they succeed. To me, it is still very difficult to think in terms of dualism, because obviously what it appears to us is that uh, our body is divided from our mind. This, this, is, uh, this is what it just appears to us, but whether this is just an appearance, I cannot confidently say. And when we are talking about harmony, I mean, I was just using mind as an expression, but I think it's whatever you want to define it, you can define what constitutes us, you can define it as, as body and mind, or you can just define everything as substance, or you can define it in some other way. And I wish I knew a better answer in this regard, like whether we need dualism or not. I personally don't necessarily think we need dualism, but I think more from the perspective of us as human beings, from the perspective of senses. For some reason, our senses did evolve to help to basically make us understand. Basically, we are intuitive dualists because that's how our senses function. And we see things in terms of dualism. But I, if you look at the fundamental level of matter or substance or whatever you want to call it, I don't think there is dualism as such. So there must be some completely different experience than we have it today, uh, that we have it from our perspective. And, and what constitutes harmony? <laughs> I mean, we can, it again depends on like what, what, what level you're talking about. If you're looking from the string theory, from the perspective of string theory, it, it could be some fundamental vibration or some pattern of vibration. If you're talking about psychological states, I mean, maybe the perfect harmony would, could even be described as a state of flow. So when you're, uh, when you're doing something that you enjoy doing at some perfect level of challenge for you and you get immersed in that activity and you get lost, we can say that is harmony. Uh, we can also say that harmony is a perfect interchange of daily activities in your life. But how do we quantify that? Can, can we put some measure to that? Yeah, I still don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So when going about learning about, you know, pink noise and variation and well-being, you know, and gathering the data, um, you know, how would you go about doing that, keeping in mind the legal and, and political aspects? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so uh, I mean, in data, so are, are in, when we talk about data, are you interested in like just in general in... Uh, in a way that is applicable to policy or just uh, even beyond policy? Uh, I think policy, but you, you said that it's not practical for policymakers to, you know, uh, you know, take into account metabolomic and epigenomic data and link it with, bio with behavioral data. But if it would be practical for policymakers or, or, or researchers to explore this idea and see if policymakers can implement it, how would you go about uh, the data gathering aspect? So, I mean, we, obviously the starting point would be kind of self 
reports because uh, I mean even even when you talk about well-being, I mean there are different obviously way to measure it. Like my uh, colleague Paul Dolan, he is obviously he specializes himself exactly in well-being research. Spectrum is more like cognitive US people how satisfied they feel with their life. But then beyond that, you could go into experience. So how do you feel at this particular moment? Uh, now you can do that across various points of the day and across various points across the year. So some people have been measuring like well-being 500 or 1,000 or more data points across a long period of time and then trying to see whether the fluctuations correspond to a specific pattern such as pink noise or other patterns. Then obviously even better way of doing that is you could measure someone's emotional uh, facial expressions and you can try to quantify and extract some patterns from that to see what is going on and to see if you can map it onto people's feelings. There are also now ways, of course, with machine learning, we can get into, well, we can predict at least feel the, the feeling aspect of well-being. We can predict it uh, from various things such as uh, how people use their mobile phone. We can even predict it from motion tracking, uh, heart tracking, and combining many different data tools. So just if you talk about, for example, can you predict how people feel, how they think that they feel from various data, that's not necessarily difficult anymore because you can just track people's bodily movement to various other parameters, and then you can predict how they feel. So just for practical purpose. And I think, I mean, there is one emerging area in behavioral science. Uh, it's, it's called behavioral informatics. It's a part of uh, one of the courses that I teach on behavioral science in an age of new technology, which is essentially just trying to have as many different sensors in the person's environment. And sensors, sensors refer to anything that can capture the data from motion sensors to your heart rate activity, when do you turn off or turn on the light, uh, when do you get out of the bed? Do you move in the bed? Uh, like really anything you can imagine. How do you use your computer, your credit card? Use like really you can you can have hundreds of sensors. And the idea is with that with that you can predict basically how person feels in real time. So you can see without asking the person directly, you can predict whether the person feels negatively, positively, whether he or she is, is in some depressive state, and so on and so on. Also, there is research which shows that basically you can predict, for example, from Facebook likes or statuses to what degree maybe people are even planning to uh, uh, undertake suicide. You can predict emotional states. So I think when it just comes to predicting how people feel at a moment, I think we are at a very good level of advancement in that regard. But when it comes to predicting like... Uh, what is the ideal, some kind of ideal pattern of activities that you need to do on a day-to-day -day basis to feel good or for long-term well-being? Well, that's, that is a bit more tricky. Obviously, I don't know everything that's happening in the world because we have now so, so, so much research going on, but I still didn't see that there is something very convincing where I would see like some very concrete findings on how should I organize my day, what exactly I should do to be uh, at my optimal best and to be healthy uh, you can also obviously try to make make the relationships between uh well-being and, and physical health as well or between the activities you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and the physical health this is where also nutrition comes in so that that kind of more complicated aspect of how you should 
actually live, uh, lead your life and what constitutes a perfect balance. Uh, there we are still not necessarily at the level where we know something deep. And I think this is not even necessarily the, the uh, problem of data collection. It is also a problem of defining what constitutes a perfect balance. Because it also what I was discussing, I was saying how I was saying that how people feel is not well-being itself. That's a manifestation of well-being. So how should perfect balance be reflected in people's day-to-day -day feelings and fluctuations? Should perfect balance mean that people have this pink noise pattern of fluctuation where they feel happy, uh, happy, neutral, and sad with some, with some regular intervals, but they never get into some crazy depressive states and so on? Is that an indicator of perfect balance or in harmony, or is, or is there something else? And I, I, at the moment, I cannot necessarily answer that question very convincingly. And I, I mean, I've been thinking also about this a lot. I mean, my research is not well-being, but I think more generally about the big picture. What is basically just fundamental questions that 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 most people have? Like, what does it mean to be a human being? What is the the what should be our aim? Uh, how should we lead our lives? And I don't think I've still found like a very convincing answer. So we do have like very sophisticated methodology nowadays, much more sophisticated than we ever had before. But these deep questions, we are still not at the level where we can actually answer them. I, and I think when psychology will really reach the stage that it can become really, really useful for each human being, we will, we will have to answer those questions. Because if I've understood you correctly, you think that even though we have so many complex methodologies in in behavioral informatics and bioinformatics you know the the problem itself is the actual definition of 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 the variables and the actual yeah. definition of the well-being yeah so what is that what would be that if there is perfect harmony what is the harmony that we need to read what is what is that everyday fluctuation of events that we need i mean even if you just look at things historically like over centuries how everything changes across centuries and uh things evolve. I mean, you have many events that you would call negative and uh, that today many of us would say this shouldn't have happened or how, how could have we let this happen. But on the other way around, you could argue that this is just the type of fluctuation that there needs to exist because we also need, we are motivated by a change of positive and negative events. And we as human beings need motivation to do something and to live. If there is no change of positive and negative effects, we would just be sitting on our couch doing nothing. We probably wouldn't survive for, for much longer. So is there some historically some pattern of change of different events that is necessary to sustain survival, both across centuries, but then within individual people as well? So these, these are all some big questions that, that we need to answer, and we are not there yet, at least to my knowledge. Maybe someone has the answers. Right. So you're mentioning that even negative as a negative uh things can be positive in the long run. So, you know, I was just curious, do you think that it could be possible that our subconscious minds, you know, puts a hard limiter on how much, uh, on how, you know, hedonistic we can become, uh, you know, so that our subconscious minds just, you know, keeps us back and knows more than our conscious minds. So you mean, so what, can you just clarify this last bit, uh, point a bit knows more than our conscious minds? 
so that okay so for example uh, if you know I, I want to go and uh, eat an ice cream so that my my subconscious mind maybe knows that okay so if it triggers a uh, a cascade or if it triggers a uh, uh, if it makes me do something that avoids me from eating the ice cream it will be better better for me in the long run do you think that it could be possible that, that our subconscious minds or some some parts of our minds uh you know can can you know do do that kind of thing well i mean i'm i'm sure that obviously as a like we we i think we consciously understand the very little things that are happening in our brain and how our brain guides our behavior uh so so uh i i do believe that obviously our our brain or whatever you want to call it regulates our behavior with some patterns that maybe will have consequence more in the long run than tomorrow or it may 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 simply urge us to do something bad tomorrow which may be good in the long run or the other way around i mean you do have many people who disadvantage themselves and you, you see that in the long run so i really it's i'm not sure i know how to interpret it uh I also think obviously we are not just individual human beings. We are all interconnected on some level. And I, I mean, obviously Jung, Jung had the idea of common subconscious. I, I don't know whether that is accurate or not. These are all speculations. I personally think speculations are very useful because with spe without speculations, you cannot come up with uh, real deep ideas that you can eventually then test. And I mean, Newton was also he was an alchemist, for example, and he had very speculative, speculative ideas, which I think inspired him to develop his scientific theory. So we, we can try to speculate in this way. Maybe even the society is interrelated in that degree that certain humans need to harm themselves so that some other humans could do something else. We, we do not know, but I mean, society is intertwined in some way. Uh, obviously, we have we have a the, organi the organization of society is such that we are constantly kind of experiencing and creating some clashes or issues. I mean, we do have many issues in the world, and that's also one of my questions. Like, are these issues important for our survival as a species simply to motivate us to go on and invent different things? Would it even be possible to live in a world where there, where there are no issues? And we would then need to create some issues simply to motivate ourselves. Uh, that is possible, and it is possible that the, the the general society kind of the, the 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 social brain regulates itself in a way that it constantly creates some conflicts simply so that the society can remain motivated to survive and that there is some constant movement and that's obvious that's just a speculation i don't know if it's accurate or if it's not accurate but uh that's one of the questions i'm also interested in do we really like when we are talking about we want to solve global warming, we want to solve this and that. So do we actually want to solve it? Right. Be able to solve it. I'm sure actually global warming would be able to solve it because if we don't, that is our end. So that's one of the problems that I actually do believe we do need to solve. Otherwise, we are we are basically done. But some other problems, do we really want to solve it or do we just talk about solving them? And once when we solve them, like what do we do? Hmm. Uh, I mean, may, maybe a very we can have a very simple example i mean 
let's say you have a governmental body that was created to solve a specific problem. I don't know. I mean, I just think, I mean, let, let's say the problem of, let's say the problem of bad health. And then we solve the problem of bad health and everyone eats well and everything. But then the department, what do they do? They solve the problem. They have nothing to do anymore. So the department is not relevant anymore. So technically, if you look at all the problems like that, once certain problems are solved, those people who are motivated by solving the, these problems, what do they do? They need to find some other meaning of life. So maybe it is possible that once all problems are solved, if we could solve all social problems at some point, maybe we can motivate ourselves with something purely individual, developing ourselves, reaching certain goals. But maybe that's also not possible. So again, these are just some questions that I would like to answer to myself, but uh, I can't. And whether we will be able at some, to po at some point, maybe we will. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I know that you are uh, engaged in teaching the policymakers of tomorrow uh, in uh, we're so. <laughs> attending the MSc in Behavioral Sciences at the LSE. And, and uh, so I was curious about knowing how do you how do you, you know, deal with this uh, problem that, you know, so you spoke before about the fact that, you know, the problem is that, uh, is that it's hard to define well-being, uh, it's hard to define different variables. So uh, how do they go about dealing with the, the this, this uh, problem when they, or how do you teach them to go about that problem when they are in, in, in public policy? Uh, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the, the main thing, uh, obviously, if you are talking about policy implications versus speculation and just trying to push the boundaries in terms of knowledge itself, I think it's measurement. We need to know what is clearly defined and measurable, and that's what can be used for policy purposes. And I mean, our co course and our approach, I typically put a very strong emphasis on teaching what can be measured, uh, what can be tested and how. Uh, and obviously what is practical, people come from various different fields and they know what problems they want to solve. And we teach them how to actually measure something to solve these problems, how you experimentally manipulate variables, how you can predict things. Uh, so you can solve some practical problems, but obviously then also make a distinction between these things that are just at the moment speculations that are related to some deeper questions that we have, but we cannot answer them yet and that's that's just what it is we do need to deal uh we do need to accept these limitations i i think i think the danger is that we go too much into one direction or, or another if we just accept for example like behavior is did they just wanted to study whatever they could measure they neglected everything else or philosophers would be just go deeply into thoughts not not caring about whether you can actually measure these things or whether they are practical in many cases. To me, I think a holistic education in behavioral sciences policy is going into both directions. So knowing what you can measure, manipulate, use for practical purposes, but then also not restrict yourself and be able to speculate on all these big questions and just let your mind wander and be creative. And then eventually we may also come up with some more, more complicated solutions and things that are useful for policy making. So, you know, in practice then, you know, how do you think that a behavioral scientist, uh, uh, you know, is, you know, quantitatively inclined, how do you think that they should uh, go about having an impact on public policy? Because I was talking uh, in um, 
episode uh, seven, I will talk with uh, uh, with uh, someone who's working with public policy in Sweden, mm-hmm. and he was mentioning, or, or uh, and when I spoke to him, I understood that there is this clash between, first of all, management con- consulting firms and st- state uh, and public agencies you know, run by the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how, yeah. So, you know, how do you think behavioral scientists should should be engaged in practice? So, uh, I mean, traditionally, obviously, behavioral science comes uh, from psychology and economics, which are traditionally kind of divided disciplines, and uh, then kind of they're merged to some degree in behavioral, in behavioral science. And I think economists were the ones who were traditionally much more influential when it comes to policy and practice than psychologists. Psychologists were mostly dealing with their own theories and experiments, but without actually trying to make some bold predictions or implications and so on. But on the other hand, economists like were very influential. And I even and even uh I think Kahneman uh when, the, when Kahneman and Fersky were formulating prospect theory, they kind of leaned towards economics because they knew that economics would be more influential. Now, there, of course, there are many different clashes today be, between different organizations and, and agencies. I don't know that much about measurement consulting, so I cannot argue in that respect. But uh, at least from my experience, I mean, what is still very interesting to me is that uh, in general, people, uh, but even policymakers, like when you can some, when you can put uh, various uh, impacts in terms of a monetary perspective. So if you can show, I don't know, by how much you can, uh, I mean, let's just look, let's just look at the easiest, like example, tax. So how much you can uh, increase tax payment by using defaults, for example, or other nudges. Obviously, that's very easy to quantify. And then you can see how much money did we spend on designing these interventions and how much did we gain. And obviously, you will see the behavioral science is very cost effective because by using very little money, you can, for example, gain much more. And you can also put like monetary kind of value on tangible and intangible goods. And that is to some degree, that is to some degree effective. But then uh, I think even going beyond that, what is really, really useful is simply that uh, we do need motivated people who will take knowledge of behavioral science, so motivated policymakers, and talk about it, make presentations about it, use it and then slowly push it and push it. And this is what has been happening across the world. Like you have many now behavioral insights team. So obviously the most fa- uh, famous one started here, the nudge unit in the United Kingdom, then the US had their own uh, behavioral insights team, but now it's becoming more and more useful across the world. So for example, I'm part of nudge Lebanon, which is very big across the entire region, the Middle East and Africa. You have India is now, uh, I think they founded their, their big nudge unit or it's in the process of being founded in many other countries. And when we talk about like practicality, it's really uh, what, what, for example, what motivates us as LSC, especially the executive master is taking people who are motivated in taking behavioral science into the real world and spreading it and then educating those individuals. And then they go 
back to their corresponding nudge units and they actually practice this on a day-to-day -day basis they talk to other people they talk to government officials then they understand what do these government officials or companies find convincing how do you need to pitch behavioral science how do you need to sell it if, if you want to put it that way and that's that's how it evolves because just for someone in academia unfortunately academia is still too disconnected from the real world and and many academics don't necessarily understand how do they actually need to present behavioral science so that people find this useful and that it's adopted and that's a really uh that's where really people from outside academia come uh and they it is their kind of not responsibility but it's their will if they have the will to do it they are the ones who can succeed and i also think what is very important if we want to kind of further push behavioral science it's really that we it's not only about policymakers and people who are practicing it it's only it's also about taking the insights from like the general population so what do they find useful which problems they have what do they find intuitive do they find if, if you if you try to implement any of these tools on them do they actually find it intuitive it is any do they perceive it as useful are they against it do they accept it so like what do they think about it so it's really becoming also emerged with the general population at any level and uh, understanding what they actually want because behavioral science is not about making some experiments in academia and then testing it in the lab or online it's really about understanding what people think and how it can help them to change and just if we talk about the current development of behavioral science i mean we do have like uh, we obviously we have like various tools that we developed so various interventions some people call it nudging this is kind of a popular term but each intervention has its specific name and we obviously we do have interventions that can change behavior to some degree but i think there will be two important developments that can bring about bigger change so one one important element uh, is that we give kind of people that we empower people and i did write one paper recently about how future developments in technology may make behavioral science more libertarian and allow people basically to change themselves in a way they want to change themselves but i'll try to explain the general uh, idea so obviously today uh, policymakers, when they want to implement behavioral science tools they may develop some tools and they say i don't know now we will uh, i don't know we will change the policy and i don't know whenever you will need to have this intervention implemented in the supermarkets or whenever people need to decide whether they want to leave their organs if they die from car crash you will make it default in the form but always it's something outside of the person that the person cannot consciously control but what if we could develop the tools where the person could then consciously say okay these are the behaviors i want to change uh, and i can now download these tools as an app and we have today more and more technologies so for example we have a uh i mean just the simple things you have like uh you have your phones okay so what if policymakers would develop some app which could be for changing certain behaviors and then you as a person you could decide what you actually want to change do you want to be healthier maybe you don't not everyone has to be healthy but if you do then you have these tools available you can download it you can use it for yourself do you want to be do you have to do you want to lead a more meaningful life well you can download the app or intervention and it can help you so this is what i mean empowering people so with technology i think we can empower people 
Uh, you also have like things like smart speakers. Speakers, for example, you can program Alexa to give you uh, prompts or verbal messages about behaviors you want to change. You can set the Alexa to remind you about exercising, eating healthy, whatever you want, if you want to change. But it's again, you are empowered. You, you, it will be your decision. It would not be someone else telling you what you need to do or, or, or what you should do. Uh, what else do we have? For example, virtual and augmented reality is becoming stronger and stronger. For those who do not know, do not know what is like virtual, sorry, what is augmented reality is actually more interested in the, more interesting in this case. Well, if you like, if you watched like the movie Terminator, so Terminator has basically in his eyes, uh, he can process the world and then get various data or text about the world. Uh, augmented reality is similar. So you put glasses and then the glasses can project various things onto your external environment. So let's say you're going to the store and uh, you say, I want to eat healthy. Well, the glasses could then detect for you whenever you're in an area with unhealthy food, the glasses could detect it before you actually consciously detect it. And the glasses could withdraw your attention into another area. They could prompt you not to buy that food. They could even visually change the food to look disgusting so you don't want to buy it. Uh, the technology is still not fully on that level, but maybe 10, 15 years it will be. So that can also be like the future of policy making, in my view, where people will be able to wear glasses normally. And then the glasses will have basically nudging implemented that is consistent with their desire and wishes about what they want to change. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, I think, will be one of the, the, uh, one of the future of policy making. So this would be like, as I said, one way of improvement. So giving people kind of the, the power, but like through technology. So you, you produce uh, the apps for them and then they decide how they want to change. Another way of empowering people is not necessarily to develop interventions for them, but basically through personal science. So personal science is like a very niche concept, but the idea is that people quantify their own behavior, whatever they're interested in, they decide, and then they use it uh, to gain insights about themselves and to change. Uh, I'll give you a very, very interesting uh, example. So there was one, one person who basically wanted to lead a more meaningful life. And he was trying to figure out how to quantify the level of meaning in his life. And he did a very interesting thing. So he bought a plant and he put that plant into an empty dark box. And he also put a light bulb into that box. And he connected the light bulb to his calendar. So whenever he would be doing activities that he found meaningful, the light bulb will switch on and the plant would grow. Whenever he would be doing activities that he found meaningless, the light bulb would switch off and the plant would be dying. And then simply by looking at the plant, he was able to see the level of meaning in his life as a visual appearance of the plant. And that is one example of personal science where you can basically think about creative ways of quantifying things yourself that can motivate you to change. But then you can measure anything else and you can play with, so you, you can measure, for example, how much you work on a day-to-day basis, what do you eat, how many meaningful activities you're doing and so on and so on. But then it's up to you to figure out, to make sense out of this. So what does this mean? How can I interpret this? How is this related to my, my everyday life? So for example, if I work 10 hours a day for a year, every day, uh, and I also measured my well-being. I measured some other parameters. 
how is this reflected into my well-being? Is this good for me or is this bad for me? If it's bad for me, then I need to change. I need to try something else. I think people have like very, really, all people have huge creative potential and, per, and personal science is really about empowering this potential and figure, figuring out the ways you study yourself scientifically and gain some insights you maybe wouldn't be able to gain without this measurement and then changing yourself. And maybe that's even, if, if I could look at the potential of behavioral science for policy, like in the far future, maybe this personal science would even be the kind of the biggest impact because I think you can only change people if you really empower them and if they want to change. If they see that they came up with these strategies and techniques, that's meaningful and then they can use it to change. And maybe the, the, the purpose of policymakers would really be to kind of encourage people to do this and help them. So to help them with the tools, to give them some ideas about the interventions, but then it's up to people how to develop these tools and how to actually change. And I don't know, maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I really think we can only like have a huge change in the world if, if we give people that power to be their own scientists. Mm -hmm. So I uh, you know if any listener wants to, uh, to know more about uh, augmented reality, I would, I would uh, recommend MQBHD's interview with Mark Zuckerberg, uh, uh, the, uh, the founder of Facebook. Um, uh, so you mentioned uh, nudging, and you mentioned uh, and often one one critique against nudging is that it's top down, and that you know it's uh, that intelligence agencies and governments can misuse it. But then you also spoke about personalized mm -hmm. uh, 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 science, so that you are the, uh, your own scientist. Um, where do you think that the balance is there, and how and you know, so even if we we are our own science scientists, we would have to face this definition problem. So we need we could uh, maybe the definition problem could be solved by by individuals, but then you know maybe there would be, would be conflicts between different people's uh, uh, way of doing things. Uh, yeah. So how how do you reason around the balance there? Yeah, I mean, the, the, like uh, the problem really we are talking about is about it, it is a problem of libertarian paternalism because behavioral scientists do think that obviously we can both uh, uh, have these paternalistic interventions and uh, but they can also give people the freedom of choice. And I would call this the first way of behavioral science was kind of creating these interventions. But then the claim was like we are not removing choice options people still have the ability to choose. For example, in a supermarket, if we put um, chocolate on the top shelf, somewhere where it's not visible, we are just changing the architecture, but we are not removing any choice options. So we still give people the freedom to choose. And some people and scientists would agree. They would say, okay, this really allows people the freedom of choice. Uh, so it is kind of both paternalistic and libertarian. Some people would say, no, this is like really paternalistic because you may not know, for example, whether eating or not eating chocolate is consistent with someone's values and beliefs. I mean, maybe I really have the belief that I should enjoy my life, eat as much chocolate as I want, and what happens, happens. I think the second stage of behavioral science is taking this into an even more uh, liberal or 
I mean, liberal liber libertarian domain, where it would really be about kind of empowering people, just giving them kind of some guidelines and indications about which tool exists, which tool exists, how they can measure their own behavior. But then it's up to them to think creatively whether they want to use them or not and how. I mean, if, if you really think about, I mean, self-help books, like people buy self-help books a lot and they, they try to use them. The only problem is that self-help books in many cases can just be very just, I mean, in many cases, it can just be the way of making money from the authors. They don't actually work. But if you, for example, can educate people a bit more, give them some tools that may to some degree actually create a change, inform them about strengths and limitations of these tools, inform them about how they could potentially uh, measure their behavior, inspire them to be creative, to invent new ways of measuring and changing their behavior. So really you empower them. I mean, to me, that, that's not necessarily paternalistic, like you're not forcing anyone to do something you're simply giving them the knowledge and it's about them then to make a choice i mean then we are getting into the question of free will does free will exist or does it not exist i mean very likely free will doesn't necessarily exist like we are to some degree bounded by the laws of physics i mean just if you look at the second law of thermodynamics we cannot defeat entropy we don't necessarily need to go into what entropy is but this is the main idea if you if i put you in an empty room for uh many days and weeks without food and anything you are going to deteriorate and die that's basically the manifestation of second law of thermodynamics so just if you look at things from that perspective we really don't have free will because first of all we need to eat but even we when we have that need we cannot just be in an empty environment all the time because our brain is going to deteriorate so we do need some stimulation we do need to do something in our life. Uh, and then when we talk about free will, in my view, it comes in that space when you decide what you're going to do. We, we cannot just say, I'm going to be in my room and do nothing because you can't, but then you can decide what you can actually do. And that's the space where you have free will. And uh, as long as you empower people to change themselves, at least in line what they would ideally like to do and be, to me, that would be some kind of ideal goal or policy of policy, because even if people have the will, they can decide what they want to be and what they want to do. Well, they're not always able to stick to that goal or, or ideal or plan or whatever you, you want to call it, but maybe they would use the tools that are helpful, uh, behavioral interventions, quantifying their behavior, simply to reach those aims. And I mean, imagine now, I mean, if, if you just look at how many behavioral scientists there are in the world, like as a fraction of the population, it's very small. But what if we could give all these tools and empower people to try to creatively use them to everyone? Like you get a huge, you are basically getting a huge collective brain that will come up with with immense innovations that we are not even aware of. This is this is how I see behavioral science. It is like uh, we could turn it into something that is basically a common good. So we, we can be behavioral scientists, we can help and empower people put these things into practice, give it to them, but then they can decide how to use it and come up with something much, much more creative than even we can uh, in the future. So yeah, that's, that's in summary how I see uh, behavioral science. So I don't necessarily think that nudging only needs to be uh, imposed 
on people and then they need to encounter it in the environment like supermarkets on the or the computer screens where they do not have any control i do think that they can be given nudging and other interventions technique intervention techniques uh in a way that they have control and that can empower them right okay thank you uh professor Kerpan, for for speaking with me and it was very very insightful very insightful thank you